All right, are you ready to study the scripture? All right, then get your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, as you know, we're in the study of Luke, a series on the book of Luke, and the, the subtitle is The Story of Jesus. And we're looking at the stories of Jesus, and we're trying to make sure that we're living in accordance with the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in to God's people. And so... Um, I want you to turn to Luke 7, then I want you to turn to one more passage that we'll go to in just a moment, and that's Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1. So put your finger in Hebrews 11, 1, then go back to, to Luke chapter 7, verse 1, and we're going to read this passage together, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about chapter 7, all right? So let's pray before we read this. Father, would you illuminate the reading of the word, the scriptures, let it come alive to us as we Share it together. Lord Jesus, let it jump off the page. Spirit of God, show us who you are and let us hear what you're saying to us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse one in chapter seven says, when Jesus had finished saying all of this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. You take your pen and underline that word, amazed. Some of your translations may say, marveled. Jesus marveled at him. Some versions might say that he was surprised. This, mine my, my is the NIV, and it says, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is an incredible story that many of you may have heard before. I, I, I think it's about the faith of the centurion. Uh, but it's important to contextually understand what story Luke is telling us. So if we zoom out just for a moment, we look back at the few chapters we've been reading, we can see that Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of his day. He's challenging them. They are challenging him. They are not happy with him. He has this following of people, and he's beginning to, he's beginning to have real authority over people. People are beginning to respond to him. So we see this, 
this uh, story that Jesus is telling. Before that, he tells us of the temptation of Jesus and how he resisted the temptations of the enemy, of Satan himself. And then before that, we see, of course, the story of the baptism and genealogy of Jesus and then, of course, his birth narrative. But it's important as, you, as we begin to look through this book, we're almost a third of the way through, and we begin to see that Luke is telling us a story not only about the Jewish people. In fact, most of the people Luke is writing to are probably not Jewish. They are Gentiles. And so he's beginning to move from these religious leaders to um, some stories from outside even the Jewish people. In fact, as you look at chapter 7, think of this. This story is, b- begins the process of kind of looking at people who are following Jesus who, are not, who don't even belong to God's people. And in a way, Luke is, is stretching the story for us to help us understand that Jesus is for more than just a select few and here he's, he's talking about this centurion, and then the next passage, he, he, the next story is about a widow who lost her son, and it's, it's a bit random, it seems like it to me, that Jesus is, is walking along, and suddenly he sees this funeral procession, and then he, he, he actually goes up, he, the scripture says he was compassionate towards this widow. She, was, she had already lost her husband, now she's lost her son. He goes up and he, he actually touches the dead body, the dead boy, and the boy comes alive. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible moment, not only for the, for the widow, but for all who are watching. It's an amazing story. And so um, you, you, you see him doing this. Now, the, the thing you don't think about as 21st century American Christians is what kind of violation it would be to touch a dead body. According to the Jewish code... That would have made him unclean. There is, there is something that Jesus is doing, and he's doing it on purpose. <laughs> he heals this centurion's son and makes an example out of his faith. And he says, he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And all the Jewish leaders are standing around going, hey, <laughs> what? He then, he, then Luke begins to tell us the story of John the Baptist, who has a question for Jesus, which is, um, we thought you were the one. He sends some people to him, and they essentially say this to Jesus. We've been sent by John. Um, he's in jail. He's in prison, by the way. And he says, he says um, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for, or is there somebody else? Even John the Baptist is questioning Why? Because it doesn't look exactly like he thought it was supposed to look. It's not not God delivering his people in the way that they thought he should deliver them. Did you ever feel like God should be delivering you in a way that he just doesn't seem to be? This is what's happening to the Jewish people. And so Luke is giving us this story. He's expanding the story for us and telling us this is not about a select few. This is about Jesus ushering in a kingdom that would change the face of the earth. And in fact, it is for all people. It is not, interestingly enough, intolerant of all. It actually includes all who will come. 
So then John the Baptist, Jesus responds to him and says, look, people are healed, blind eyes see, deaf ears hear, um, people, people who couldn't walk anymore, they're, they're walking, don't be discouraged because of me. He doesn't answer the question directly, and I hate this about Jesus. I mean, don't you hate it sometimes? And like, just answer the question immediately. I asked you for something. Why won't you give me a straight answer? It, it all goes back to this idea of what kind of Messiah is being ushered in. Is he the kind of guy who takes over the way we would take over? Is he the kind of guy that would take over things and run them like we would run them? No. He's coming with a different authority. He's coming in a different, unique way. He's coming and ushering in a kingdom that functions differently than the world's systems. And so here, the chapter ends, and, and of course, chapter, chapters were given much later than Luke wrote them, but here in this section of his book, um, he, 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 we see chapter 7 ending with the story of the of, of the sinful woman who came to Jesus and broke open a jar of perfume and poured it, an expensive jar of perfume, over his feet. And she anointed him, of all places, in the house of a Pharisee who had invited Jesus for dinner. So I want you to see that there's an expansive move here. There's a, to tell the story that Jesus is, his, his work and his kingdom is going beyond the, just the Jewish people, and it is starting to affect and infect people who are, are, are hungry and thirsty for the real thing, for God and what he's doing. Back to the story of the centurion, we, we come back here and we see that he is, he is a man who has done some things that have really been helpful to the Jewish people. And, and so he, he has a faith that I think is important for us to identify here, but it is not faith in the historical way that you might have been taught or I might have been taught. I mean, you, we all come from all kinds of different historical and religious sort of backgrounds and traditions. I mean, there is a whole world of faith teaching in American Christianity that I, I, I think misrepresents what's happening here in this chapter. Uh, you've probably heard people say uh, there's, a, there's a teaching and they, 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 they call it name it and claim it. I like to call it blab it and grab it. <laughs> this is not what faith is. Faith is not just seeing something that you want to have and then somehow confessing it and that confession somehow will lead to the supernatural dynamic of you getting what you want. See, that is such a surface way of looking at faith. There's something else that's so much deeper, so much more important for us to learn and understand about Jesus' authority. And, and here is where we would go to um, Hebrews chapter 11. So turn over there. Just flip over there if you have already have it in your, ready in your Bible. And we'll look over there to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Because this, this is the famous faith chapter, and it essentially says, describes what faith is. It, here it is, it says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
Oh, if you think that through, if you really think about what that means to you, it means you have faith that there's, God is doing something that you don't see happening. If you look at what that passage begins to say, it's talking about hope. Hope is something that, that, you, that you think is going to happen, but you're not quite sure. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then he begins to describe what the ancient characters of the Bible were commended for. And we're not going to take time to do that. We'll jump down to verse 6. Because he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is something that is primary to our relationship with Christ. Faith demands that we, that we, that we peel back the layers and go deep, deep, deep into the idea of what faith requires and demands of us. This passage in Luke 7 gives us an opportunity to do this. And so turn, turn back there and go back to Matthew, or sorry, Luke chapter 7, and, and let's review the story because I want to answer the question, what is so great about this faith? Jesus said that this centurion's faith was so great he'd never seen anything like it even amongst God's people. He didn't see it. And so as we look back at this passage, I want to answer the question, what is so great about this faith? Well, number one, I think what's so great about this faith is that this man had humility. Let's look. As Luke describes him in verse 3, he says, the centurion had heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask him, uh, to asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. They said, this man deserves to have you do this. You need to go and see this guy. You need to go heal his servant. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So just a few things about this guy. Okay? Number one, he was, he was interested enough in his servant or his slave to heal him. I don't know if you realize this, but people in charge of a lot of people, they sometimes, they, they get callous to the people who are, are, are serving them. I don't think it's godly, but I think it happens. And it could have happened to this guy. Because he's, he's, he's a Roman centurion. He probably lived, he lived here in Capernaum, and he, his, his commanding officer was probably in Caesarea, about 50, 50 miles away. But here he is, and he's got some servants under his control, and he cares for the servant enough to do what? He, he goes and he talks to the elders, the Jewish elders in the city, and he says, would you go and would you ask Jesus to come here? Now, he knows he has a good enough relationship with the Jewish elders to ask them to do this. He has a relationship with God's people. He's... he's, he's become aware that God is working through the, the work of his people, and he's been so convinced that he's given money to build the synagogue. 
So there is already, as a, 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 a Roman, a person who would recognize God's authority. He begins to recognize something through God's people. He begins to recognize that he is not necessarily the only one who has responsibility, that God is working in his community. So the centurion had humility toward God and his people. And we see that by his building the synagogue. Now, what's so, what's so connecting to faith about humility, right? Well, humility is something that is required for you to put your confidence in somebody else. <laughs> Most of us like to put our confidence in ourselves. Have you ever heard anybody say, uh, it's just much easier to do it myself than to tell somebody else how to do it? This is, this is, this is kind of how we work, is we just want to do it ourselves. That way we can know. This is not the kind of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in among us. His kingdom is not doing things ourselves. His kingdom is making sure that others are doing what he wants them to do. Our, the kingdom he is ushering in is us looking to others for instruction and for help. So this humility, of one of the famous passages on humility is 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. And I'll just put it up on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there, but it says all of you... How many people is that? How many is that? All? No, how many? All? Just the, the, ones who, the ones who know, the ones who should. The, no, it's everybody. It's all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. I like how he describes this as clothe yourselves with humility. Somehow, somehow, some of us think we should pray for humility. But what Peter says is, you have to clothe yourself. Humility is always chosen. Hey, here's, the, here's how it works. Pride sneaks up on you. Nobody purposefully becomes prideful and arrogant on their own. They typically don't make decisions for it. What they do is it sneaks up on them a little bit at a time. And you can always tell when people are full of themselves because they say things like this, well, how dare you? How dare you tell me what to do? How dare you assume, presume that you can show me the way things should be? See, humility is required for genuine faith because you have to have faith in the design that God created for us as a community to receive from others. He says, all of us, clothe yourselves. You have to choose to humble yourself with other people. You have to choose. I could, okay, I could say it right here. Ready? Ready? Everybody be humble. You can't do it. You know why? Because humility is only, is only embraced in your actions towards others. But you, can't, you, can't just, you can't just be humble suddenly in a seat. You actually have to engage in a... Uh, in an activity or an action that demonstrates your humility. Now listen, if you refuse to humble yourself, then God will humble you. <laughs> and if God has to humble you, that's way too late for you. <laughs> It'd be much better to humble yourself than to be humiliated. Choose humility. This man does. And he says it, it's interesting, he says 
He says here, when he sends the second group of people to Jesus, he says, don't come because I, I, I didn't... I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you, in verse 7. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, so, so, so he's, he just says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, and I did not even consider myself worthy of coming to you. Now, if you listen to this through your 21st century American self-esteem ears, what you will hear is, well, he should believe in himself. You know, he kind of thinks he's nothing. And that's not what I'm talking about with humility. All right? We have a distorted view of our own self-esteem. And so we, somehow we, we, we think we have to, you have to believe in yourself before you can believe in others. Well, I, okay, okay, I, I, I get that. But what humility is, is being willing to honor other people, even people who may not be completely worthy of honor. Even people who may uh, mistreat you. If, if we look at Jesus and what he said in Luke 6, he essentially, just a chapter earlier, he said, look, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. See, it's a different kingdom that we're talking about. Humility is one of the things that, that, that is required for you to have the kind of faith that this centurion has. You have to believe that God knows more than you. You have to believe that God knows more than you. Now, I know this sounds funny to even say that. It sounds ridiculous. Well, of course God knows more than you. But somehow in our daily routine of dealing with humility, we think we know how it should all work out. And faith is being humble enough to know he's working. I don't know the, all the answers, and I'm going to trust him. Okay, the second thing is submission. This guy understands submission. Submission. Here it is, he says in verse 8, for I myself am a man under authority. Now, just pause right there, and I want you to underline the word under. Under. Most of us want to focus our attention on the great display of healing that Jesus does in this story. And we want to say that Jesus has all the authority, and so you can be healed. Okay, I get that, and I think that's true. If Jesus says you're healed, you're going to be healed. There is no way around that. But I think the, 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 if we look at the story a little more carefully, we see a, maybe, maybe even a broader picture of what faith is all about. Because this man says, he, he, he goes on and he says, I, I, I order this guy to do this and I order that guy to do that and my servant does what I tell him. And he, he gets that. But he's also a man who is under authority. That's how he starts the sentence. He's a man under authority. He understands how authority works. Most of our American experience is not about submitting to people in authority. And even when we do submit to people in authority, it's begrudging. We don't understand authority. I mean, the, if, you, if, you, if you look at all the shows on NBC right now, they're all uh, these crazy stories, and it started with The Office, you ever, you ever watch The Office? It's a pitiful show. Uh, has, I mean, wildly funny at certain times. Wildly inappropriate at others. I am not recommending it in any way, shape, or form. But there's all these stories about how offices work together and how managers oversee people. And, and, and we don't have a grid for the kind of tight authority structure that this 
centurion understood. In fact, if you go to our military, their way of dealing with authority and submission is much more strict and much stronger than you or I mostly experience in our routine life and, and work. But it, if, you, if you doubt, if you doubt in any way that Jesus in his kingdom is any less in charge or any less strict about his authority, if you doubt that, you're getting it wrong. Jesus is in charge. Jesus has authority. This man realizes it. That's why he sends the delegations to, to, the, to him to ask him to come and then to say it doesn't matter. Don't, don't come. Just say the word. And so he understands authority in a deep way. And I think for us, I think as one chapel, what we have to do is we have to rediscover what being submitted to people in authority is really about. The centurion believed in the authority of Jesus as God's representative here on earth. That's clear. He believed that Jesus was an authority. He, he had seen God's people. He built a synagogue. He, he, was, he understood that there is something here that I need. And this guy has authority. Jesus had authority, but I want to draw your attention to John 8, 28. John 8, 28. I'll just read it to you. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. Jesus said... On a couple of occasions, I don't do anything without my father telling me what to do. Hey, 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 if, if there's anybody who's been on the earth who could have done what they wanted to do, it was Jesus. But here, sadly, um, so, there, there's like, a, there's like a, a, a thing that we learn here for ourselves, and that is Jesus didn't even do whatever he wanted. He submitted himself. He submitted himself. The only reason it's sad is because it means something for us. It means we have to submit ourselves to God and to others. Jesus only did what his father told him to do. He lived and acted under God's authority. Now the question is, are you willing to live and act under God's authority? Well, sure I am. And here's how it goes. I'm totally committed to God's authority. But I don't need to submit to any person. I don't submit to people. You know, I just submit to God. Hey, if you hear somebody say that, run, run, run far away from them. Because this is not the kingdom that God has set up. This is not how the scriptures articulate the way authority should work in God's people. In fact, the only way we demonstrate submission to God in heaven is by submitting to another person here on earth. If you think about it carefully... You might, you might think, you know, at first glance that Jesus didn't submit to a person in authority. He just submitted to his father. But you would be wrong. Do you remember him standing before Pilate? Do you remember him uttering not a word? Do you remember him submitting to the crowds? I just read it this morning. Actually, maybe it was yesterday in the Daily Bible reading in Matthew. I can't remember where it was, but it, said, it, it was where Jesus said, don't you know that I could call 
thousands of angels to just help us? He could. Do you ever feel like, well, then why don't you? (laughs) And here's the sad part. Here's the sad part, because sometimes that's not his plan. It wasn't in Jesus' case. In Jesus' case, he had to stand before Pontius Pilate and submit himself to the brutal process of being put on a cross. There's something about yielding to God's authority that we must embrace and must understand in order to really understand the kind of faith that this centurion has. I'm out of time now. I'll give you one more point and then I'll go. Number three is about conviction. Humility, submission, and conviction. This, this, this centurion did not have total assurance that Jesus would respond to him. He was not sure what was going to happen. He believed in Jesus' authority and that if Jesus would say that his servant was healed, he was going to be healed. But it, he, did not, he didn't have it all figured out. In fact, in fact, this guy showed the humility and submission is so much a part of his culture and who he was that he didn't run to Jesus and grab him by the hand and drag him all the way to his house and make him put his hand on his servant. He could have done that, by the way, you know. He could, have, he could have been that invasive. He was, a, he was a Roman centurion. He was in charge of stuff. He could, have, he could have made things happen. Could I challenge you to have the conviction that in the face of things not looking like you think they should look, that you would put your faith, that you would have conviction that God is still in charge? It's very difficult to do, by the way. It's hard to to settle this, but here's the thing I want you to see is we don't put our faith in an outcome. We put our faith in a person. If I could leave you with one phrase, this is it. We don't put our faith in an outcome. God, I need this job promotion. God, I need to pay this bill. God, I need to make this happen. Now, does he want to hear all about that in prayer? Absolutely he does. He wants you to dialogue with him and talk to him about everything, but The outcome is not where you put your faith. You put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ who has all authority and all power. And and life doesn't seem fair sometimes. It doesn't seem like things are happening in the right way. And, And I understand that. I don't want to gloss over that part of it. But faith is saying, I trust Jesus anyway because he has a plan and a purpose and I'm going to serve him and I'm going to humbly submit to his leadership even in the face of the difficulty. If you look at James 1, it says, I want you to count it all joy when you suffer various trials of many kinds. One of the worst verses in the Bible. <laughs> One of the most difficult verses in the Bible. But if you, if you see what he said, well, I'm just going to read it to you now. Ready? Here it is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may become, so you may be mature. Everybody say it. Mature. 
God wants you to become mature, not immature. He wants you to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Ooh, he doesn't want you to lack anything. What? What? He doesn't want you to lack anything? Well, then he should just give me all the stuff. Yeah. But he doesn't because he's working something else in you. He's working another, there's a kingdom process that's working in you. Here, here's what it says, perseverance must finish its work so you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom about this process, which most of you do or will at some time or another, he says, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must not believe, he must believe, <gasps> here it is. This is faith right here. He must believe, don't doubt, don't shrink back. Put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. Have conviction. Have a conviction that you are firmly planted on that God is who he says he is. Even in the face of the, of the difficulty or this challenge or the struggle or, or whatever you see in front of you that says this does not make sense, he says because um, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Ow, that hurts. Listen, James 1 through 8 tells us that trials do not give us perseverance. Trials do not give us perseverance. Trials do not give us perseverance. The testing of our faith does. The testing of your faith is what develops perseverance. That's what begins to build your trust in God. The testing of your faith begins to build who you are and what you believe and, and what you really are going to live like regardless of what it looks like in, in the, the world you live in. Regardless of what your spouse does, you have faith that God is working. If you will apply faith to that, then you are going to grow in perseverance. Now, listen, if you just whine and complain about it, if you just are, 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 are mad about it, if you shake your fist at God, say, why don't you help me, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you know what that does? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, no, you, don't, you don't get the benefit of the testing of your faith. This is a challenge to you. And it's going to be a greater and greater challenge as you go further and further in your life. I think in our culture, we are set up for a tremendous challenge with bringing the kingdom of God alive in our city. But God has a plan. He has a purpose for you. Close your eyes and bow your heads. Father, would you help us? Would you show us? Would you teach us? Would you help us to understand what faith is really all about, that it is not just um, somehow demanding something that we've read in your, in your word, although we believe in your authority. We want to learn how to submit ourselves to authority. We want to learn how to submit to authority so that your work can be done through us and in us. Teach us how to be humble. Teach us how to, teach us how to be forgiving. Teach us how to have conviction and how to trust you in the face of discouragement. 
Father, I pray for people all over the congregation here today who are struggling. They're, they're, they're really being challenged in a great way in their personal life or in their marriage or in their finances or whatever. Lord, I pray that you would help them to persevere. Help them to apply their faith to this perseverance. Help them to understand what you're doing. And even when they don't understand it, that they would still trust you with all their heart and not lean on their own understanding. But in every way, acknowledge you so that you can direct their steps. Lord, teach us how to be people of faith. Teach us how to be like this centurion who trusted the authority of Jesus in his life. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Now just with your eyes closed, your head bowed. If you're here and you're making a commitment to Christ today because you realize he's calling you, he's asking you, he's, he, he's chasing you, you can hear him deep on the inside of you, down in the pit of your stomach, you, you hear him calling to you and you've been running away or you've been far away from him. Somehow he's saying to you, come home, son or daughter, just, just come home. Come home, believe that I have what you need and I can do everything that I've said I can do. Come and put your faith in me. If you're doing that maybe for the first time or the first time in a very long time, I want to give you a chance to just pray with me. I want to pray for you. And so I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if that describes you, just shoot your hand up in the air across this auditorium. If that's you. Yep, I see you right here, young man. Over here in, in this side. How many? Way in the back. I see you, two or three back there. Anybody else? This, I'm making a commitment today, and I want, to, I want Jesus to take over. He's the only one who knows. Yep, I see you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. This is a, such a good commitment. Come on, let's pray this prayer. Everybody with me, pray this prayer out loud and let's give our hearts once again to God. Everybody say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who forgives me and heals me. I repent of my sin. I turn around. I choose God's way instead of my way. I surrender to the work of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my place. Renew my heart. Give me a fresh start. I welcome you here. Take over. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for healing me and making me new. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, every person that prayed that prayer, seal it by the work of the Holy Spirit and continue the work even outside of this room and beyond in their, in their personal lives and in the, in the week that is to follow. Would you whisper your life, your truth, your heart to them. Call them. Guide them. Lead them. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.